Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today, we're going to be starting a short series. It's a series of four episodes on autonomic pharmacology. We're going to start this one off with adrenergic agonists. Like we have for mostly all of our podcasts, this is all available on YouTube. We've already completed all these lectures on the whiteboard. So if you want to, if you're more of a visual learner, go check that out first. Review here with the podcast if you need to. Otherwise, like always, go on ninjaner.org, grab your notes, your illustrations, everything you need, because we're using the notes for this episode and we're going to make sure to kind of go through it step by step to really understand first adrenergic agonists. So, Zach. What do you think? Pretty pretty good episode ahead here? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a pretty important one. I think especially those working in, especially like an ICU setting um, or an emergency medicine setting, you'll experience some of these drugs. And so I think it's a really th- good thing to kind of have a good understanding. So the first thing we have to do is our normal process is trying to lay the groundwork out first. So let's talk about the, the normal physiology of the adrenergic system, really the sympathetic system. So we have to first talk about uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, the, the target organs and, and the receptors that are all involved with this process. So Zach, go ahead and lay that down for us, please and thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about your adrenergic nervous system or the adrenergic component, it's really, really two parts of your autonomic nervous system. So there's the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. We're really kind of diving into the sympathetic nervous system and the effect that they have on these adrenergic receptors, because that's really the target of how we're trying to kind of increase the activity. Because when you think about agonists, you're trying to kind of have the similar action or increase the action of that adrenergic nervous system. So we have to have a basic understanding of how the physiology occurs. So if you were to take, for example, some type of sympathetic neuron, Sympathetic neurons really, you know, are very interesting in the sense that when we make this very important neurotransmitter called norepinephrine, really it all starts in the neuron with a very special amino acid called tyrosine. So tyrosine actually gets taken up into these neurons, these sympathetic nervous system neurons. And when tyrosine gets taken in and it goes through a kind of different steps, like it actually gets hydroxylated and it gets converted into L-DOPA and then L-DOPA gets broken down or actually gets converted into dopamine via dopa decarboxylase. And then dopamine actually undergoes enzymatic reactions and gets converted into norepinephrine. So really, when you think about norepinephrine actually being released from these neurotransmitters, it's actually formed via kind of a synthesis of a lot of steps starting with tyrosine. But nonetheless, tyrosine gets converted eventually into norepinephrine. When norepinephrine is actually formed, it's kind of stored in these things called vesicles, which are in the terminals of these sympathetic neurons. And what I want to do is I want to get this norepinephrine to be released from that neuron. So I have to have particular ions come in. So in other words, I have to stimulate the sympathetic neuron. Action potential would flow down the axon, activate a voltage-gated calcium channels to open. Calcium rushes into the axon terminal and triggers the fusion of the synaptic vesicle with the membrane, and then boom, there goes the norepinephrine, gets released. When norepinephrine is released, it goes and it binds onto different types of receptors. And then when it binds onto those receptors, it'll exert a particular physiological function, right? And that's what's really, really important. And so when we think about this, the reason why it's important is because there's two phenotypes of receptors or groups of receptors, if you will, that are part of your adrenergic system. And that's your alpha receptors and your beta receptors. So if norepinephrine gets released from these sympathetic neurons, let's say it binds onto an alpha one receptor. What's the overall kind of process here? Well, when it binds onto alpha-1 receptors, what it really does is it increases the calcium inside of those cells that it binds onto. 
And when you increase the calcium inside of these cells, and this is very common in smooth muscle cells, the alpha-1 receptors, it really causes intense contraction of those smooth muscle cells. So oftentimes you'll find alpha-1 receptors present on smooth muscle cells. And so again, what you'll do is you'll bind onto those receptors and increase the calcium in those cells and increase the contraction of those cells. That's very, very important, okay? So what I'd like you to assume is alpha-1 receptors, they cause contraction of smooth muscle. That's the most common one, okay? The next receptor is an alpha-2 receptor. This one's an interesting one. Alpha-2 receptors, I want you to think as an inhibitory type of receptor. So alpha-1, primarily kind of a stimulatory receptor. Alpha-2, kind of a weird one, it's kind of an inhibitory receptor. And what I want you to think about is that it inhibits secretion of things. So whenever norepinephrine binds onto the alpha-2 receptor, it actually causes a decrease in cyclic AMP and then leads to kind of a decrease in secretion of or excretion or release of particular substances. And really where I would want you to remember is on glands and on, this is a long one, but the uh, presynaptic on the actual uh, synaptic terminals. So the presynaptic nerve terminals um, of our autonomic nervous system. So don't forget those two things, glands and the synaptic nerve terminal or the presynaptic nerve terminals. Those are the things that I want you to remember. All right. So alpha one receptors present on primarily smooth muscle cells. They're going to cause contraction if norepinephrine binds. Alpha-2 receptors present on the nerve terminals of the presynaptic motor neurons of the sympathetic nervous system or on glands, they're going to inhibit the release of norepinephrine and they're going to inhibit the release of particular hormones. Beta-1 receptors is the other type. So now we have the beta receptors that we're going to hit. Beta-1 receptors are primarily going to be found on the heart muscle and on the kidneys, so the, what's called the JG cells. So these are the two primary areas. So norepinephrine binds on to these receptors, the beta-1 receptors, it actually causes the heart tissue to increase two things. One is the heart rate. So you generate faster heart rates, all right? So it can increase your heart rate. The second thing is it can cause the heart muscle to contract harder. So it increases contractility. The combination of these two things is if you increase heart rate, you increase contractility, you theoretically will increase your cardiac output, and then you'll increase your blood pressure theoretically. So that's an important concept that I want you guys to remember. The other two remaining receptors of the beta system is the beta 2 and beta 3 receptors. Now, when uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine, which I'll talk about in just a second, bind onto these receptors, the beta-2, the beta-3 receptors, there's an interesting concept here where when these are present, the beta-2 receptors can be found also on smooth muscle. Okay, so it's primarily found generally on smooth muscle. All right. Whenever you act on the beta-2 receptors, okay, of these smooth muscle cells, what it actually does is, is it actually inhibits the smooth muscle cells from contracting. In other words, it promotes relaxation. So remember, alpha-1, if you hit that one with norepinephrine, it causes contraction of the smooth muscle cell. Beta-2 receptors, it causes relaxation of the smooth muscle cells. Please don't forget that. Okay, beta-1 receptors, the cardiac muscle, and again, the kidney. So it increases the contractility and the heart rate in the heart. And I didn't actually mention the kidney, I apologize. In the kidney cells, if you hit the beta-1 receptors of the norepinephrine, it causes the release of renin, which activates that renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, ADH system. For the beta-2 receptors, again, please don't forget, smooth muscle 
If norepinephrine hits that, it causes relaxation. Beta-3 receptors can be found on adipose tissue and also on the bladder. Okay, so it's found on adipose tissue and the bladder. And so generally, whenever norepinephrine acts on beta-3 receptors, it actually causes two particular actions. One is it actually causes a relaxation of the bladder smooth muscle. And second thing is it actually causes lipolysis in the adipose tissue. In other words, you break down the actual fat in the adipose tissue. Okay, so up to this point, my friends, we've covered that when a neuron, a sympathetic neuron, releases norepinephrine, norepinephrine is actually formed via a kind of enzymatic process where tyrosine gets converted to L-dopa, to dopamine, to norepinephrine. Norepinephrine gets put into vesicles, gets released whenever a neuron becomes activated, releases norepinephrine, combined onto alpha receptors, beta receptors, alpha one, smooth muscle contraction, alpha two, presynaptic nerve terminals, and glands inhibits secretion or release. Beta one, heart, kidney causes increased contraction of the heart muscle, increased heart rate, and renin release. Beta two receptors, smooth muscle relaxation. Beta three receptors, lipolysis and your, um, um, the uh, bladder relaxation. One more thing to add on here is that there is another neurotransmitter, which is very important to your autonomic nervous system or your adrenergic system. And this is epinephrine. Now, norepinephrine is actually made right within the, you know, these neurons in your central nervous system from tyrosine. Whereas epinephrine is primarily synthesized by the adrenal medulla. That's an important thing to remember. So your sympathetic nervous system actually does activate. So whenever you activate your sympathetic nervous system, and release norepinephrine, you actually stimulate your adrenal medulla at the same time. And your adrenal medulla pumps out norepinephrine, but also epinephrine into your bloodstream. And when you really look at the difference between the two and like their structure, it's, they really act very similarly, but there's a small difference in their structure. And it's really just like, you know, norepinephrine has this kind of C, uh, carbon group with an OH and then it has like an amine group. Whereas when you look at epinephrine, it has like this longer kind of like amine and carbons group, which all that really does is allows for epinephrine to have more of a propensity to bind to beta receptors. And again, we'll talk about that in a little bit anyway, but it's a really cool concept. So again, norepinephrine released directly from sympathetic neurons bind onto all these receptors, but so does epinephrine. Epinephrine binds onto all of these receptors, alpha receptors, beta receptors as well. But it's just to remember that it's not released directly from these neurons of your sympathetic nervous system. It's released from the adrenal medulla. And due to its change in structure, it may have a little bit more propensity to want to bind to beta receptors than it would with alpha receptors. But nonetheless, we'll get into that a little bit more. Now, after norepinephrine binds with the receptors, it's done. It's exerted its function. We don't want it to kind of stay in the synapse forever and continue to keep either stimulating or inhibiting these tissues. So it has to get recycled or broken down. And so norepinephrine can get broken down by enzymes called like catechol-methyltransferase. That'll break it down into an inactive metabolite. It can get taken up into the actual uh, nerve and then put back into the vesicles, or it can get broken down by monoamine oxidases. So either way, the same kind of concepts occurs is that after norepinephrine is done, it can get metabolized in the synapse, or it can get reuptaken into the actual axon and get recycled into the vesicle, or it can get broken down again. Why am I really taking all this time to mention this kind of prerequisite information? Well, one is I want you to understand how norepinephrine and epinephrine are really made, 
how they're released, where they're released from. And then I want you to understand which receptors they bind to and the effect that they'll have on those receptors, which we'll talk about in just a little bit more in a second. But I also want you to understand here is that not only is after norepinephrine kind of synthesized, released, bind onto the receptors, it has to get recycled or it has to get degraded. There is three types of adrenergic agonists that I want you to remember. And this is very important, guys. One is you can have direct agonists. What the heck does that mean? In other words, they bind directly to the same receptors that norepinephrine and epinephrine would bind to. And they have the same exact effect as norepinephrine and epinephrine would have on those receptors. Okay, those are the most common ones. And those are going to be the ones that we'll primarily discuss throughout the primary portion of this podcast. The indirect agonists is they work kind of a little bit differently. They help to cause more norepinephrine or more epinephrine to be present because they basically prevent its degradation. So maybe they inhibit the COMT enzymes and they keep more of the norepinephrine present in the synapse. Or maybe they prevent its reuptake so it can't be taken back up into the vesicles. In other words, you keep more of it in the synapse. Or you don't you prevent it from getting broken down by the monoamine oxidases. So you keep more of it from being, you keep more of it continuously being recycled. And so in that concept, there is certain drugs that have the ability to do that. Unfortunately, they're not drugs that we commonly like to prescribe people, such as cocaine and methamphetamines. So that's another kind of like drug category that we probably won't discuss too often, but just do realize they can kind of enhance your sympathetic nervous system because really what they're doing is they're trying to prevent the breakdown and the reuptake of norepinephrine and epinephrine to keep more of that present in the actual synapses so that it can continue to bind onto the receptors. So that's the indirect mechanism. And then you have one last drug category like pseudoephedrine um, or ephedrine, which are mixed. In other words, they kind of do a little bit of both. So they can bind on to some of the receptors directly, or they can also kind of cut, prevent the breakdown and the reuptake of some of these neurotransmitters like norepinephrine, epinephrine to keep them present in the synapses as well. And again, not a commonly utilized one other than just kind of utilized in maybe decongestant types of situations as well. But those are the three categories with the primary one that we will focus on being direct agonists. Now, the next thing that we have to talk about, and I know it's very frustrating, and you're probably like, Zach, I really don't want to discuss this. I want to talk about the drugs. Hold on there, okay? We got to talk about the receptors. And because the reason why is if we talk about how norepinephrine, epinephrine act on these receptors, and then we give a direct agonist, we know exactly what it's going to do to our body now, okay? Because it's going to just enhance the effect that we already know, the physiological function. So I can already tell you the mechanism of action of these drugs once I know the basic physiology. So we're kind of hitting both at the same time. So what is alpha-1 receptors going to do? I already told you. Whenever norepinephrine, epinephrine binds to them or direct agonists bind to them, they're going to do what? They're going to cause the smooth muscle to contract. And then it's going to cause that muscle to contract. Well, then think about what are the smooth muscles that these are present in? Like where in the body? And how is that relevant? So the first one that I want you to remember is this, the vessels. That's probably the most important one, the blood vessels. So the blood vessels, lots of smooth muscles. So if you contract them, your blood vessel is going to contract, going to vasoconstrict. And that's going to reduce the diameter of the vessel. And it's going to cause the resistance that the blood is going to be experienced as it runs through that vessel to really increase and then shoot up your blood pressure. Okay. So one of the effects here is increasing blood pressure when you hit the alpha one receptors. Okay. Second one is it actually causes the sphincters of the um, urethra, the internal urethra sphincter and the external urethra sphincter to constrict like a mofo. Okay. So you squeeze those suckers 
And if you squeeze them, you prevent yourself from undesirably uh, defecating and urinating. Okay, hopefully. The last one is the smooth muscle present in the pupil. So it also controls that because there's all these theories behind like whenever a patient activates their sympathetic nervous system, you want them to not pee and poop on themselves, obviously. You want their blood pressure to go up so that they can perfuse organs to run away from the whatever the thing is that's causing their sympathetic nervous system to be high. And you want their pupils to dilate so that you have more light hitting multiple parts of their retina so that they can see far and better, et cetera. So it also will cause the pupils to dilate as well. So these are the three things that you can see. And you may think, why is this relevant? It'll come in when we talk about alpha-1 agonists because they may be utilized in patients who need to increase their blood pressure or you need to dilate their pupils or, I don't know, usually we don't use this to kind of cause patients to contract their urethra and, and uh, their rectal areas. But again, there is drugs that we can use to actually relax those sphincters, which will come into alpha-1 agonists, antagonists, which we'll talk about in another podcast. But anyway, that's alpha-1 receptors. Alpha-2 receptors, I told you two places. Presynaptic nerve terminals, there's going to be alpha-2 receptors, and then glands, okay? And it's basically inhibiting the excretion or release of particular molecules. What are those things? Whenever norepinephrine, epinephrine, and bind onto the alpha-2 receptors on the presynaptic nerve terminal, it inhibits it from releasing norepinephrine. So what happens is all the central nervous system drive that is actually going to be responsible for releasing norepinephrine onto your heart, onto your blood vessels, in your central nervous system is suppressed. You inhibit norepinephrine release or drive from your central nervous system portion. That is a really important concept that we'll come to a little bit later. And then the other one is that you have alpha-2 receptors on the pancreatic beta cells. And basically, um, when you think about it, if a patient is... Um, running away from a bear, you want to have as much glucose in their bloodstream as possible to fuel their muscles to continue to keep utilizing that. So I don't want insulin to be super high because it's going to shuttle all that glucose into my cells. And then, you know, I'm not going to have as much glucose in my blood to go all over the body. And so what happens is I kind of want to shut off the insulin production. And so that really kind of shuts the insulin production off to allow for my glucose levels to be theoretically a little bit higher. And so that's another thing that you'll see here with the alpha-2 receptors is the inhibition. Because again, alpha-2 is your inhibiting release, inhibiting the release of norepinephrine from the central nervous system or inhibiting insulin release from the actual pancreas. Okay, then we go to the beta-1 receptors. The beta-1 receptors, or do I talk about it on the heart or on the kidney cells, the JG cells? If we give a drug that acts on the beta-1 receptors is going to increase the heart rate. It's going to increase the contractility. That'll increase cardiac output and theoretically increase the patient's blood pressure potentially as well. That's a beneficial thing, especially in patients who maybe have cardiogenic shock or have some type of problem with their heart. The other one is the juxtaglomerular cells. If we stimulate those puppies, it may increase renin release as well, which may increase angiotensin II, which increases your blood pressure by constricting the heck out of your vessels and increasing your sodium and water retention by increasing ADH and aldosterone production. And again, beneficial in trying to increase patients' blood pressures. The other one is beta-2 receptors. So I just told you the alpha-1 causes smooth muscle contraction. Beta-2 causes smooth muscle relaxation. So where would you want the smooth muscles to be present? The smooth muscle is going to be primarily in your blood vessels. So it's going to cause vasodilation, reduces the diameter, reduces the resistance, and may reduce the blood pressure. You may seem like, okay, why is that beneficial? I may kind of want to reduce the resistance to blood flow in particular organs that I really need a lot of blood flow to go to. Which ones? 
my skeletal muscles. So I really don't want a lot of resistance to blood flow to my skeletal muscles because I want as much blood to go to my skeletal muscles as possible. So I want to increase my, my systemic blood pressure. Yes, but I want the resistance to my actual muscles, my skeletal muscles to be as low as possible. So vasodilating those actual kind of uh, blood vessels going to my skeletal muscles is super critical. And so you will see beta two receptors being hit to vasodilate those actual vessels to the skeletal muscles. The next thing is we have smooth muscles present in our bronchial trees. So if we actually cause the relaxation of our bronchial smooth muscle, it'll actually dilate the bronchioles and increase the diameter of the airway so that you can move more air in and out. If you're running away from a bear, you want to have as, lot of, as much air movement uh, coming in and out of your chest as possible, right? I love the bear analogy, but that's the concept there. Um, the other thing here is that there's beta-2 receptors that are present on the pancreatic cells. So you're like, wait, Zach, I talked about insulin already. Well, what's this one? This is glucagon. So glucagon does what? It increases your blood glucose levels. I want a lot of glucose going to all my tissues as much as possible. So in this situation, I actually cause a stimulation of glucagon. So I increase glucagon release to increase my blood glucose levels so that I actually have a lot of glucose readily available for my tissues. The other concept here is that um, the uterus. So you're probably like, what the heck? What are you talking about here? The uterus, what, where did this come into play? How is this involved in the sympathetic nervous system? Well, you don't want to be having um, generally a baby when you're kind of running away from a, from a bear, right? So generally what you'd want to do is um, when, the, when a woman is pregnant um, or they're going closer towards their labor period or kind of, in the, or actually I should say more in the early stages of their kind of their pregnancy period, you don't want them to kind of have undue contractions and things of that effect. So what happens is, is you have two types of receptors on your uterus. You have like the, um, the alpha one and then you have the beta two. So you can cause like, you know, smooth muscle contraction, uh, when you need to, which is basically whenever the mother is ready to give birth. Um, and then you have your beta two receptors, which are going to be the ones that basically are supposed to relax and prevent contractions. And so you have kind of a mixed. And so generally you would want to hit those beta two receptors and kind of cause the patient to have no contractions. So relax the smooth muscle of the uterus so that they don't pop a baby out when they're, you know, mid stride away from a bear. Okay. So those are the things to think about with that one. And then lastly is the beta three receptors. I just really want you to think about the detrusor muscle, the bladder. So it basically is just going to hit the beta three receptors and cause the smooth muscle of the bladder to relax. So it inhibits urination. So you're not peeing on yourself when you're running away from a bear. So again, those are the concepts that I think are truly like critical to understand. Cause now that we've built up our foundation, my friends of the adrenergic neurons, the receptors they bind to, the neurotransmitters that are involved in this system, like norepinephrine, epinephrine, where they come from, what's their slight differences and affinity for receptors. And then once those things bind onto the receptors, what's their effects on these organs that they're present on? And then lastly, we talked about what are the types of drugs that bind directly to those receptors, direct agonists, which are the ones that basically prevent the degradation and reuptake of norepinephrine, epinephrine. Those are the indirect. And which are the ones that do a little bit of both? Those are the mixed. All right, now my friends, we've covered at this point, the physiology, our true kind of like background information to start really kind of going through these drug categories. Does that make sense, Rob? Yes, my friend, it did. That was awesome. It was a lot of information there. That was one heck of an intro. But like you said, we kind of have all the information we need now to totally understand these, this system, really the sympathetic system exactly. and our adrenergic agonists. So now what we have to do is let's transition into talking about the drugs, right? Finally. So let's talk about <clears throat> the drugs that are acting on our alpha agonists, the drugs that are acting on our beta agonists, and then our drugs that are acting on a mixed alpha beta agonist. 
So also, if you, you wouldn't mind, Zach, as you go through this process, please talk a little bit about the adverse effects that are going on related to these drugs. Yeah. So I think when we kind of get through these, as Rob said, let's talk about these in three categories, the drugs that are alpha agonists, the ones that are beta agonists, and the ones that are mixed. So if we start off with the alpha agonists, again, we have two receptors. So just remember that alpha one, alpha two. Some of these drugs are more pure, like primarily like alpha one. So let's let's talk about some of these alpha one agonists, if you will, if you kind of like break these into the subtypes. Um, the first one is phenylephrine. So phenylephrine is a very interesting drug, um, commonly utilized, I think, in a critical care, emergency department kind of world, um, especially in patients with who have lower blood pressures. So when you think about this, I think phenylephrine is great in patients who have hypotension, maybe a shock state. Um, so they've been getting IV fluids and they're still kind of hypotensive despite, despite fluid resuscitation. It may be next to kind of beneficial to add on phenylephrine. The other thing I think is it's commonly utilized like perioperatively. So if a patient is in the OR, um, they're getting a surgery performed and they're on some degree of sedation. So maybe they're on some sedation that's kind of making their blood pressure a little bit softer. Um, you can potentially add on some low doses of this drug, the phenylephrine, to kind of just give them a little bit more vasoconstriction and keep their blood pressure appropriate while they're in the OR. Sometimes they're kind of lingering um, the effects of the anesthetics or the sedation postoperatively. It's very common intra-op and post-operatively to kind of require a little bit of phenylephrine just due to the anesthesia. Um, so that's one particular thing. The other concept of phenylephrine is that we can use it um, to kind of cause that dilation of the pupil. So remember I told you that you get the, <clears throat> the concept here is that if we get phenylephrine, it's going to affect our blood pressure. Why? Because it's going to cause an intense vasoconstrictive mechanism that's going to increase your blood pressure, right? So that's why we can use it for the shock, despite fluid resuscitation, to use it for perioperative hypotension. But then there's the other concept that it actually causes the dilation of the pupil. So if we give this drug and maybe you want to get a better look at the retina, you kind of want to get a better look at the eye in general, especially for some type of ophthalmolog uh, ophthalmologic, you know, kind of procedure or evaluation, you can consider some kind of like topical phenylephrine there to kind of cause the pupil dilation. So that may be something to consider. There's one other effect here. And this is a really interesting one as well. So when you think about this um, phenylephrine, you can actually give it topically on the kind of eye. You can give it intravenously, and that's really going to increase the blood pressure. But you can also kind of give it like intranasally. So you can give it as a spray. And what happens is when you give it as a spray, it kind of like gets back into the nasal cavity near some of the nasal capillary vessels. And so in patients who, who like Rob, <laughs> have like a lot of uh, congestion um, and have a lot of kind of like uh, problems where there's just maybe a lot of inflammation because of a sinusitis, maybe it's allergic or maybe it's viral or maybe it's bacterial. And they're just really kind of inflamed and congested and it's kind of blocking off the drainage of their sinuses. What we can really do is, is we can try to reduce some of the increased secretions and some of the in, uh, edema and capillary permeability that's causing a lot of that swelling by vasoconstricting the vessel. So if you have a lot of blood vessels, a good blood supply going to the glands and going to a lot of the um, kind of the area there, sometimes if there's a lot of blood flow, it can cause a lot of like edema and it can cause a lot of like uh, substances that you have available for those glands to use to make a lot of secretions. So if I constrict if I give a drug like phenylephrine and it vasoconstricts those nasal capillaries, it'll reduce the blood flow to the glands, which will reduce the secretions. And it'll also kind of reduce a lot of the edema and, and vasodilation in that area. So that's a potentially beneficial concept in patients who have a lot of like congestion, okay, especially with an upper respiratory tract infection. Phenylephrine is pretty good in that. 
There's one other thing. What if you're bleeding? <laughs> so what if a patient's like pumping blood um, because they decided to stick their finger right up there and dig around the gold mine? Um, and, you know, because of that, they ended up with a you know, epistaxis, kind of they're bleeding from their nasal cavity. Well, what I could do is I could squeeze the vessel super hard in that area and prevent blood flow through those nasal capillaries and to reduce the amount of blood that's kind of leaking from those the actual uh, nasal capillary system. So an epistaxis phenylephrine may also potentially be beneficial. Um, one of the things to think about is there's another drug that's also intranasal, like phenylephrine, that you can give to kind of cause that vasoconstrictive response in the nasal cavity, and that is oxymetazoline. So again, phenylephrine, if you give it IV, increases your resistance to increase your blood pressure, especially in shock states, perioperative hypotension. If you give it topically, it can cause uh, pupillary dilation for opto procedures and evaluation. When you give it intranasally, it can cause nasal capillary vasoconstriction, which is beneficial in congestion to reduce a lot of the edema and secretions, as well as an epistaxis to reduce the bleeding that they may have. Another drug that you can give that can have the same effect as, um, as phenylephrine intranasally, so it can cause vasoconstriction in the nasal vessels to reduce congestion and to reduce epistaxis is oxymetazoline. Now, one of the things to consider, especially with oxymetazoline, is that whenever you use this drug, it's also trade name Afrin, when you have a patient who has like a lot of congestion from an upper respiratory tract infection or a sinusitis of some form, if you continually keep using this drug and then you stop, it can actually cause a rebound congestion because then you lose all the alpha-1 vasoconstrictive effect and now they're all dilated. You get a lot of blood flow to the area. You get a lot of secretions, a lot of increased edema, and then a boom, back to congested feelings again. So important to be able to remember that. Now, with phenylephrine, one of the other things I think that's really, really important is its adverse effect when you give it IV. So when you give this drug intravenously, it really constricts your blood vessels, increases your blood pressure. Now, when it does that, when you increase your blood pressure, it works on those carotid and aortic baroreceptors causes them to send signals to your central nervous system to say, hey, the blood pressure is really high. We should try to lower the blood pressure a little bit. And so what it does is it tells your sympathetic nervous system to kind of like shut down and activates your parasympathetic nervous system to go to the heart and reduce the patient's heart rate so that you don't have as high of a cardiac output so that you drop your blood pressure a little bit. But unfortunately, you just drop the patient's heart rate. And so what you see with this is that you see a reflex bradycardia, which is very, very common with phenylephrine. Now, one other thing that I want to add here is that there is another drug that acts just like phenylephrine, but it's not an IV version. It's a PO or oral version, and that is midodrine. So midodrine is the same kind of concept. It's going to act on the alpha-1 receptors on your arteries and cause vasoconstriction, increase your resistance, and increase your blood pressure, and it may cause a reflex bradycardia. One of the other things I love that people constantly forget because... It's interesting is that alpha-1 receptors aren't just present on our arteries, my friends. They are present on our veins. So if phenylephrine hits alpha-1 receptors on the arteries, it will cause vasoconstriction. It will increase resistance and increase blood pressure. But it also acts on the alpha-1 receptors on our veins to squeeze blood back to the heart. So it also increases venous return which increases your stroke volume, your cardiac output, and your blood pressure. So you get two effects of blood pressure with phenylephrine and then the oral equivalent Midadrine. Okay, so that's our alpha-1 agonist. We now have an idea of phenylephrine, oxymetazoline, and the oral equivalent of phenylephrine, midadrine. Okay, 
Next thing here is we're going to talk about alpha-2 agonists. Now, alpha-2 agonists, there is another name for these, and they are called sympatholytics in a way. <laughs> they kind of have like a sympatholytic effect, which is really interesting. So the two drugs in this category are clonidine and alpha-methyldopa. So remember I told you that basically um, alpha-2 agonists will bind onto alpha-2 receptors on the presynaptic nerve terminals. When they do that, they inhibit norepinephrine release. Well, the basic concept here is that if you inhibit norepinephrine release, you inhibit the release of norepinephrine from the central part of your nervous system to your heart, to your blood vessels, and you also reduce the sympathetic drive throughout your central nervous system in general. So because of that, you get a lot of effects. One is if you kind of reduce the sympathetic release in your central nervous system, the patient becomes more lethargic, more sedated, more calm. The other effect is that you reduce the sympathetic supply to the heart. So you drop the patient's heart rate because now you have less norepinephrine release under the heart. There's less heart rate and then less contractility of the heart. Both of these things drop cardiac output and drop blood pressure. The other thing is that you have less supply to your blood vessels. And so now your blood vessels don't have as much of that kind of like vasoconstrictive response. So now they vasodilate and that reduces your resistance and reduces your blood pressure. So these two drugs, clonidine and alpha-methyldopa, could be beneficial in patients who have, if you think about it, hypertension. Because it's reducing heart rate, reducing cardiac output, reducing vasoconstriction, which are all things that could potentially reduce your blood pressure, which would be beneficial in patients who have hypertension. So consider that, clonidine, alpha-methyldopa. One caveat here is that alpha-methyldopa, and this is a big thing for your boards, is way more preferable in one of those medications that are safe, if you will, in patients who are pregnant. So that is a big thing to remember for this drug, alpha-methyldopa. To add on a couple more things for clonidine, because you get more of that sedative action really with this drug, uh, because you're reducing the sympathetic kind of effect within the central nervous system, that could be kind of like somewhat beneficial for patients who are very hyperactive. So ADHD, Tourette's, that may be a very potentially beneficial drug in that patient population. And then one more thing. All right, so this is cool. Patient who's been taking benzos, all right, maybe they've been on benzos for 20 plus years, um, or they're taking opioids and they've been taking that for a lot and a while, uh, maybe even a, a long time, um, or they've been drinking tons of alcohol and all of a sudden they stop taking their benzo, they stop drinking alcohol and they stop taking pain medications. When they do that, they go through a withdrawal period. So when you were taking these medications, they were kind of shutting down the sympathetic nervous system. But then all of a sudden you take that away. Now their sympathetic nervous system is on hyperdrive. They're going to become agitated. They're going to become delirious. They're going to become maybe a little bit combative from the central nervous system effect. You're going to have an increased sympathetic drive to their heart. Their heart rate's going to go up. Their contractility is going to go up. Their blood pressure is going to go up. You're going to constrict their vessels more. It's going to increase their the vasoconstriction, increase their blood pressure a little bit. They may even have a little bit more sympathetic drive to their lungs. So they may even breathe a little bit faster as well. In these situations, what if I gave a drug that shut off the sympathetic effect that's as a result of their withdrawal? 
This is another beneficial drug that you can give to patients who are having withdrawal symptoms. And it's because it's kind of shutting down the sympathetic effect from their withdrawal. So clonidine, and then there is an IV equivalent that I absolutely adore in the ICU, and that is called dexmedetomidine. So these are two similar drugs. Clonidine is the oral version. Uh, dexmedetomidine is pretty much just the IV version of that. So please don't forget that, my friends. That covers, with this respect, the alpha-2 agonist, and that covers our alpha agonist category. So at this point, we have discussed alpha-1, which is the phenylephrine, the oxymetazoline, the metadrine, and we covered alpha-2, which is the clonidine, dexmedetomidine, and then lastly, alpha-methyldopa. All right, now we move on to the beta agonists. So we have, again, drugs that are maybe pure beta-1. Maybe they're a little bit of beta-1 and beta-2. Okay, let's talk about these. So the beta-1 agonists, one that is like a pure, like pure beta-1 agonist, um, primarily is dobutamine. So dobutamine is really, it's a primarily a beta-1 agonist. It does have a little bit of beta-2 activity, very minor, but it does have primary beta-1 activity. So think about what that would do, my friends, especially on the heart. There's beta-1 receptors on the nodal system. It's going to increase that. Their heart rate's going to go up. So that would be very, very beneficial if the patient is bradycardic. So we can give dobutamine in a patient who has bradycardia because guess what dobutamine is going to do? It's going to increase their heart rate. That's cool. The other concept is it's going to cause the muscle of the heart to contract like a son of a gun and squeeze harder and pump more blood out of their heart. So that would increase their cardiac output. That would be beneficial in diseases where they have a low cardiac output, like acute heart failure or, or maybe a chronic heart failure with decompensation or cardiogenic shock. These could be potentially beneficial indications of that drug. Now, one of the things I think that's really important to remember, though, um, about dobutamine is that Adverse effects is that if you're increasing the heart rate a little bit too much, guess what you can get? Tachycardia. If you're kind of causing an increased contractility of the heart and the patient has coronary artery disease, so they have a plaque in their vessel um, and it's reducing the blood flow and then you cause the heart to work harder, what can you potentially do? You can maybe cause a reduce, um, you already have a reduced oxygen supply, but then you increase their demand, you can worsen their angina, you could potentially increase their ischemia to their heart. So something to potentially consider. But I think that this is a very important drug to be very aware of, especially in patients who have symptomatic bradycardia or acute heart failure, cardiogenic shock, who are very cardiac output dependent. Okay. The next thing is going to be the beta one and beta two. Okay. Beta one and beta two. I don't want you to forget. Please don't forget dobutamine. Yes, it is a primary beta one, but it does have a teensy little bit of beta two. So what does beta two do? So just so we're while we're here, what does beta two do? It causes vasodilation of your blood vessels. So if you vasodilate, what does that do to the resistance? It reduces the resistance to blood flow. What does that do to the afterload on the heart? It reduces the afterload. If you reduce afterload, what does that do to stroke volume? Well, now I don't have to work as hard to pump blood out. It's going to improve my stroke volume. And what does that do to the cardiac output? It improves your cardiac output. So in patients who have heart failure, it's important to remember that dobutamine has a dual action. It increases the heart rate, increases the contractility to try to get more blood out of the heart, but it also relaxes the blood vessels to allow for more blood to leave the heart. So that's a cool thing to actually add on to remember. Okay, beta 1, beta 2 agonists. So the primary one that I don't want you to forget, um, because it has kind of a very um, equivalent beta-1, beta-2 action here, is isoproteranol. 
So isoproteranol is a very interesting drug in the sense that if you hit the beta-1 receptors, you're going to increase heart rate very powerfully, I might add. I I had a nurse one time tell me that you know isoproteranol can get the heart out of a rock. Um, it's insane the, how powerful that drug is. So because you get a beta-1 agonist activity, you're going to really increase their heart rate. So it's great in patients who have symptomatic bradycardia. You're also going to get a little bit of contractility. So because it has that beta-1 activity, you'll increase the contractility and try to increase their cardiac output. But because it has a lot of beta-2 action, what also do you get? Uh, it has more beta-2 action than dobutamine, actually. So because it has more beta-2 action, you're going to cause an intense vasodilation. If you vasodilate like a son of a gun, you're going to definitely cause a significant drop in resistance and you can cause the patient's blood pressure to go down. So that's an important thing to remember. The other thing is that there's beta-2 receptors and it's present on the bronchial smooth muscle. Remember I told you that? And because isoproteranol, when it has um, this drug that you're giving, guess what else it can do? Not only can it hit the beta-1 receptors, increase heart rate, increase cardiac output, uh, by increasing contractility, it can again hit the beta-2 receptors by causing vasodilation, which reduces resistance, which again will reduce blood pressure, but also try to improve afterload um, so that you can get more blood out of the heart. So it can improve cardiac output. But one of the biggest things is that it can also bronchodilate. And so that may be beneficial in patients who have asthma. So I think that's a really cool thing to think about here is that it's good for bradycardia, symptomatic bradycardia, to increase your, again, your, your heart rate. It could be given in patients who potentially um, are having a cardiac output problem. But the only downside to giving this one, though, is I would be very, very careful because, yes, you do get an increase in cardiac output by causing the heart to squeeze harder. You do relax the arteries a little bit more to reduce afterload and improve outward flow, but it drops your blood pressure a little bit more. And so because of that, I would say you should be very, very careful in utilizing this in patients who have acute heart failure, cardiogenic shock, because it can actually make them more hypotensive if they're not already hypotensive. So kind of a scary thing. And then if you have no other option, you could potentially give this to a patient who does have asthma because it will give a little bit of bronchial uh, dilation. But these are things to consider for your isoproteranol, my friends. Okay, so we talked about the beta-1 primary. So I'd say beta-1 way more than beta-2, dobutamine. We got beta-1 kind of equal to beta-2 agonism, isoproteranol. Now, what about the primary, like, pure beta-2 agonists? So, like, they're pretty much primarily beta-2 agonists. So, this is going to be things that you'd want to remember, like albuterol, salmeterol, and terbutaline. Now, with these being said, um, albuterol is very short-acting. Terbutaline is also very short-acting, whereas the salmeterol, formoterol, those are going to be more of your longer-acting beta-2 agonists. Now, what would you utilize these for? Albuterol, salmeterol, terbutaline, they can all be utilized in patients who have you know, reactive airway disease, so bronchial constriction. Um, and so this could be an asthma, this could be in COPD or so. This is a potentially beneficial group of drugs to consider. Terbutaline also hits the beta-2 receptors that are present on the smooth muscle of the uterus. And so if it binds there, it'll actually inhibit contractions of the uterus to inhibit premature labor. So in patients who are maybe potentially exhibiting premature labor, uh, we may give them terbutaline uh, to kind of slow that down and kind of give them maybe 24 to 48 hours to kind of get prepared, kind of get them loaded up with steroids and et cetera. So that's maybe a potential benefit of terbutaline. 
Some of the adverse effects that I would be careful with to a minor degree with these drugs is that they could potentially cause hyperglycemia uh, because again, they are kind of increasing the glucagon release and causing a little bit of a hyperglycemic effect. They can cause some degree of tremors because they're hitting the beta two receptors on the muscle spindles, which can cause them to kind of contract more. Um, and then increase the tremory effect. And then they also may cause increasing shifting of potassium out of the cell via the sodium potassium pumps. You may stimulate those pumps more and pump more of the, um, uh, the potassium kind of out of the cell. And so that may be another thing that you could potentially see as hyperkalemia. But these are the things that I really would want you guys to remember here for the primary pure beta-2 agonist, albuterol, sarmeterol, terbutaline. All of them are good for giving bronchodilation effect and asthma COPD. The other one is the uterine effect. So it can act as a tocolytic and inhibits uterine contractions for premature labor to kind of delay that preterm labor. That's terbutaline. And then the adverse effects to watch out for is hyperkalemia due to increased stimulation of the sodium potassium pumps, hyperglycemia, and tremory effects from increased muscle spindle activation. All right. So we got beta-1 primary, pretty much, a little bit of beta-2, dobutamine. We got beta-1 equal to beta-2 agonism, isoproteranol. And we got pure beta-2 agonist. Uh, again, albuterol, formoterol, salmeterol, and then terbutaline. The next one is pure beta-3 agonist. And this is going to be something called myrabegron. And really, what is it doing? It's inhibiting the smooth muscle contraction of the bladder so that the bladder will not contract an empty urine. This is potentially beneficial in patients who have um, overactive bladders or urinary urgency um, due to them having a lot of spasms of their bladder and having to constantly feel like they have to go or urinary incontinence in that situation. This may be a beneficial drug because it helps to keep the, the actual bladder relaxed to some degree so that it's not contracting and causing a lot of urine to be evacuated undesirably. Downside to that, just be careful, could potentially cause urine retention. So watch out for any kind of adverse effects with that. But that would really cover the, again, pure, well, I'd say pure, but pretty much beta one, all right, which is, but has a little bit of beta two, just don't forget that dobutamine, that would cover the beta one equal to beta two agonism, isoproteranol, the pure beta two agonist, albuterol, again, formoterol, sumeterol, and then terbutaline, and then it would cover the pure beta three agonist, myrobegron. Now we come to the last thing that Rob highlighted, which is the mixed agonist. In other words, they have some degree of alpha. They have some degree of beta. It's, it's, it's kind of variable. Okay. And maybe even dose dependent, which is very important. So let's start off with norepinephrine. You're like, wait, Zach, that's a drug. Yes, it is. So we actually, yes, naturally make norepinephrine, but we can also give it. And then epinephrine, there's another one. And then dopamine, we also make that one. So we can give these drugs. Now, norepinephrine. What I really want you to take away from here is that, yes, it is an alpha and beta, but it loves alpha more than beta. Do you remember I kind of re I introduced that a little bit in the beginning of the lecture where I said that the epinephrine structure has a larger kind of like carbo carbon chain off the end of it. So because of that larger carbon chain off the amine group, it allows for it to love beta receptors more than it loves alpha receptors. So that's very important. So norepinephrine loves alpha more than it loves beta. And then epinephrine and dopamine, they love beta receptors more than they love alpha receptors. That's what I really want you to get away from this, okay? So now, let's kind of go through this. Norepinephrine, because it hits those alpha-1 receptors, what are you going to get because of that? You're going to constrict the vessels like a son of a gun. That means arteries and veins. If you constrict the arteries, you increase resistance and you increase your blood pressure. If I'm really being more specific, it technically can increase your diastolic blood pressure due to the vasoconstrictive effect. Okay. 
just like who else? Phenylephrine. Phenylephrine was an alpha-1 vasoconstrictor. The other concept is what else did I tell you? There's alpha-1 receptors that are present on the veins. So that's going to cause venoconstriction, squeeze blood up to the heart, increase venous return, increase stroke volume, cardiac output, and increase your, technically your systolic blood pressure. So you're increasing blood pressure both ways, venous return and arterial vasoconstriction. That's a really cool thing because why would that be beneficial? That's really beneficial in patients who have vasodilatory shock. So septic shock most commonly. Norepinephrine is one of the first line agents, the agent of choice in patients who have vasodilatory shock or septic shock because you're going to vasoconstrict the arteries and vasoconstrict the veins, increase venous return and increase your systemic vascular resistance. So you get a beautiful effect with that. The other thing here is because you kind of cause those alpha-1 receptors to vasoconstrict like a son of a gun, you get the same effect as you did with phenylephrine. You cause those bare receptors in the carotids and the aortics to become sensitive to that. They tell the actual medulla, hey, blood pressure is pretty high. We should probably drop the blood pressure maybe. So shouldn't we kind of fix that? So then what it does is it says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slow down the heart. So it decreases the heart rate. And when it does that, it causes this reflex bradycardia. Okay, so that's a big thing to think about as well. In true reality, though, my friends, I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> but but nonetheless, uh, it's something that you should remember in the textbook. But working in an ICU, dealing with norepinephrine pretty much on a daily basis, Rob, I can honestly say with 100%, I've, I've never seen that. But nothing to kind of like add on to with that. Well, We're thank gonna... you for your honesty. <laughs> now, the reason why I may not see that is because of the next effect. So... You do get a little bit of beta-1 receptor activity. So maybe at lower doses of norepinephrine, you get more of the alpha-1 type of activity. So theoretically, if you have more alpha-1, you're going to increase resistance, increase blood pressure, and then theoretically cause the reflex bradycardia. But as you go on higher doses of norepinephrine, I told you that it's kind of dose dependent. Now you hit more of the beta receptors. So as you increase your norepinephrine, you do get alpha-1 stimulation. But guess what else I start hitting? the beta-1 receptors. Now, where are the beta-1s again? On the heart. So the reason why I may not see this too often is that most of my patients are in shock. And so they're requiring very higher doses of norepinephrine. And so because of that, they may end up hitting those beta-1 receptors on the heart, which is the nodal cells, and increase the heart rate. So it may kind of like lead to kind of a leveling off effect if you want to think about that, because you're getting a direct beta-1 stimulation at higher doses of norepinephrine to counteract the reflex bradycardia from the alpha-1 vasoconstriction. But the other thing that you're getting is you're hitting the beta-1 receptors in the contractile portion of the heart. So you increase contractility and increase cardiac output. So with that being said, if a patient has a vasodilatory shock, like septic shock, um, this would be a good drug because it's going to squeeze the actual arteries to increase your actual vasoconstriction. But if a patient also has cardiogenic shock, you may also get a potential benefit from this drug because of why. At higher doses, you're stimulating the beta-1 receptors to increase heart rate and increase contractility to increase the patient's cardiac output. So theoretically, you may see a slight increase in cardiac output. The only downside in the textbooks, though, is that there may be a slight normalization <laughs> of cardiac output. So whenever we say norepinephrine can actually increase cardiac output, that may be somewhat true. If it is, it's very mild. And here's the reason why norepinephrine can hit the beta one receptors in the heart and cause increased contractility. That'll increase cardiac output increases the heart rate. That'll increase cardiac output. But here's the other side. When you cause vasoconstriction of the arteries, what do you do to the resistance? You increase it. 
When you increase resistance, what do you do to the afterload? You increase afterload. When you increase afterload, what do you do to the stroke volume? You decrease the stroke volume. If you decrease stroke volume, what do you do to the cardiac output? You decrease cardiac output. So you, if you think about it, the direct effects on the heart from norepinephrine may increase cardiac output, but the effects on the alpha system may decrease cardiac output. And so it may kind of normalize if you want to think about that. So really when it comes down to it, what I really want you guys to remember for norepinephrine is that it's a primarily alpha one type of receptor binder, which will increase resistance and increase your blood pressure. The way that it'll do that is it'll cause arterial vasoconstriction to increase resistance. It'll cause venous constriction to increase venous return and increase cardiac output. And it may have some beta-1 receptor activity at higher doses to increase heart rate and increase your contractility, both of them trying to increase cardiac output. But the cardiac output may normalize or slightly increase because of the other effect, which is the alpha-1 vasoconstriction increasing afterload trying to drop their cardiac output. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Now we go on to the next thing, which is epinephrine and dopamine. I mean, sorry, dopamine. I want you to treat these relatively similarly in the sense that they love beta way more than they love alpha. So what does that mean? If these bad boys love the beta receptors, they're going to do the exact opposite with respect to norepinephrine. So they're going to hit the beta one receptors. And when I say beta, I'm not talking about just beta one, my friends. I'm talking about beta one and beta two. So epinephrine and dopamine both love beta one and beta two. Whereas norepinephrine, it loves alpha one and primarily beta one. Okay. Epinephrine and dopamine, they love beta one first, then they love beta two second, and then they love alpha third. So if they hit the beta one receptors hard, what are you going to do? Increase heart rate, increase cardiac output. That'd be good in patients who have bradycardia. They also increase the contractility to increase cardiac output. That'd be good in patients who have low cardiac output, like acute heart failure, like cardiogenic shock. Then here's the other aspect. They bind to the beta-2 receptors on the arteries, which will do what again? Vasodilate, reduce the resistance, reduce the afterload, which will reduce what? I'm sorry, will actually um, improve their stroke volume and their cardiac output. So that again, may be beneficial in a patient who has low cardiac output. The only downside, though, is that if you vasodilate arteries, what do you do to the resistance? You reduce the resistance and maybe drop their blood pressure a little bit. The only positive thing that you can say here is that as you increase the dosage of the epinephrine and as you increase the dosage of the dopamine, you start hitting those alpha-1 receptors. As you start hitting the alpha-1 receptors, what do you get as an effect here? Then you start getting the vasoconstriction of the arteries, the vasoconstriction of the veins. So I increase my resistance. If I increase my resistance, what am I going to do to my actual blood pressure? I'm going to increase my blood pressure. If I increase the venoconstriction, I increase the return of blood to the heart to increase cardiac output. So whenever you kind of think about epinephrine and dopamine at lower doses, it's primarily going to cause cardiac stimulation and vasodilation. So it may, as a result, cause your heart rate to go up, your cardiac output to go up, but it may cause your like your actual kind of like your blood pressure to drop a little bit when you think about it. So that's an important concept to be able to remember. But as you start increasing the doses, and this is where it's really, really important, as you increase the dose of epinephrine and norepinephrine, you now start hitting less of the beta one. Well, you still hit beta one and beta two, but guess what else you start hitting? alpha one receptors. And so at higher doses, you may start squeezing the arteries, increasing the resistance and increasing the blood pressure. So what does this mean? 
When we utilize epinephrine and dopamine at lower doses, they're really good at increasing heart rate and cardiac output. So that means that they would be beneficial in patients who have bradycardia, symptomatic bradycardia, or have low cardiac output, so acute heart failure or cardiogenic shock. As you increase the dosage of epinephrine and dopamine, now you still get the increased heart rate, you still get the increased contractility to increase cardiac output, but then you start hitting the alpha-1 receptors, and then you start causing vasoconstriction, increasing the resistance and increasing the blood pressure. So they could be used in hypotension, like shock states, like septic shock, cardiogenic shock, at higher doses. That's really, really important to be able to remember, my friends. Okay? Now, one of the other things I think that's really important to add on here is that you also get the beta-2 love, especially with epinephrine. And that's one of the cool things. I actually love epinephrine. I hate dopamine. It, it, oh, it, wait, I thought you loved dopamine. <laughs> nah, man. No, it, no, it, you, you, no, you love dopamine. Nope, nope, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Dopamine's a... Try, a I try. Yeah. <laughs> dopamine is a, is a terrible drug. I'd say that the only reason you should use it if a zombie apocalypse exists or oh, good. it's the only drug that you have available at your hospital. But <laughs> I think that epinephrine would be the um, alternative here and the superior drug in this situation. Because as you can see, they have very similar similar types of effects. But um, one of the cool things about epinephrine and dopamine, if you think about it like this, but just I remember, I didn't say that, uh, <laughs> is that if you hit those beta-2 receptors on the arteries, yes, you get the vasodilatory and you kind of reduce afterload and improve cardiac output, but you could drop pressure. You also hit the beta-2 receptors in the bronchial smooth muscle. So because of that, you can actually bronchodilate. And I, I like this drug whenever I have a patient who has like really bad asthma um, or like some type of like severe bronchospastic disorder where I need to give them a little bit more of a, a help. So I have patients who have anaphylactic shock. In other words, they're hypotensive and they're having bronchospasm as a result of some type of anaphylactic reaction. Epinephrine is a is a beautiful drug to add in here because it's going to hit the beta one receptors in the heart, increase heart rate, increase cardiac output, increase blood pressure. It also will hit the beta two receptors in the lungs to cause bronchodilation, and at higher doses, it may cause alpha arterial vasoconstriction to increase your blood pressure as well. So I really like this drug as a kind of a really severe asthma patient um, or an anaphylactic shock patient. So that's important to remember. Dopamine, no, you can't use this in the asthma or anaphylactic shock patients. So please add that into the list of things of indications. But I think at the end of the day, um, when you talk about these drugs, really what we're going to do here in a second is go over how do you really kind of like when it comes down to it, if I have to have a profile, a graphical representation, really, um, if you will, that compared the cardiovascular parameters between norepinephrine and epinephrine and maybe even isoproteranol, what would that look like? Right, Rob? Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to hear about this. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> I bet you are. So <laughs> when we compare uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and like isoproteranol, I, th I think one of the best ways to kind of think about this, especially for your exams, my friends, is looking at their effect on the heart rate, looking at their effect on the systolic blood pressure, looking at their effect on the diastolic blood pressure, looking at their effect on the systemic vascular resistance, their effect on cardiac output, mean arterial pressure, and in some degree, pulse pressure. So there's a lot of things, but I think it'll make sense when we go through these one by one. So if you were to say, if there were some, someone to ask you, okay, what would norepinephrine do to your heart rate, to your systolic, your diastolic blood pressure, your resistance, your cardiac output, your MAP, and your pulse pressure? You should be able to say this back to them in this particular way. All right. Heart rate, it should drop the heart rate. 
<laughs> and again, in reality, I've never seen this, but nonetheless, think about it for your boards. How would it do this? It's the alpha one receptor. It hits the alpha one receptors, causes vasoconstriction, increases blood pressure, causes the bare receptors to shut down the sympathetic supply and increase parasympathetic supply, which creates a reflexive bradycardia. Okay. Just like phenylephrine. Okay. What about the systolic blood pressure? Well, systolic blood pressure is dependent upon a couple different things. It really, it's dependent upon like your cardiac output, which is dependent upon preload, which is dependent upon contractility, those kinds of concepts, right? And, and, um, and even some degree, your heart rate. So if you think about it, what would norepinephrine do? Well, it causes a increase, a slight increase in contractility, right? So it can cause a slight increase in contractility by hitting the beta one receptors. It also can cause a um, increase in the preload. Why? Because it actually will cause kind of an increase in the venoconstriction, which improves the venous return to the heart. So that'll increase their preload. So when you give norepinephrine, it increases preload and increases contractility, which increases stroke volume, cardiac output, and systolic blood pressure. So norepinephrine should increase systolic blood pressure. What does it do to the diastolic? Well, diastolic blood pressure is primarily dependent upon resistance and blood volume. So if we think about what norepinephrine do, it doesn't really affect our blood volume, but it will affect our resistance. It hits the alpha-1 receptors on the arteries and vasoconstricts the life out of them and increases resistance, which will increase your diastolic blood pressure. So you get an increase in systolic and diastolic blood pressure and a drop in the heart rate is a reflexive reaction to the increase in blood pressure. All right. It also, we already talked about this. What would it do to the resistance? It increases the systemic vascular resistance by causing alpha one arterial vasoconstriction, which creates the reflex bradycardia reaction. We already talked about that. And then because it increases resistance, it increases diastolic blood pressure. Here's the thing I talked to you about cardiac output. What kind of effect would it have on the cardiac output? You can say it's normal to maybe slightly increased if you really want to think about it. Why? It causes the beta-1 receptor stimulation, which increases contractility to increase cardiac output, but it causes alpha-1 vasoconstriction, which increases resistance, increases afterload, reduces cardiac output. So if you kind of think about both of those, they may cancel each other out and have a normal or no net effect on cardiac output. Okay. Next one is mean arterial pressure, and that's really kind of the... I think it's the, the best way of saying it is mean arterial pressure is really more dependent upon your diastolic blood pressure. That's the way I want you to think about it. And the reason why is the formula is diastolic blood pressure plus one third of the pulse pressure. So if you really think about MAP, MAP is really a marker of really diastolic blood pressure. The higher the diastolic is, the higher the MAP theoretically will be. So if you think about this, what does um, the uh, norepinephrine do to your diastolic blood pressure? It increases the, the life out of it. How? Because it squeezes the arteries, which increases the resistance, which increases your diastolic blood pressure. So it's going to shoot the mean arterial pressure up. So when we talk about MAP, mean arterial pressure, the perfusion pressure to organs, norepinephrine will increase that like a mofo. Okay. And then pulse pressure is really the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. And really, when you think about this one, it may have a slight increase in this because it increases the systolic. So it increases the systolic upwards and it also increases the diastolic. But because you're going to getting the both net effect of this, there may be a slight increase in the pulse pressure between those two. Okay. All right. Epinephrine. What would this do if someone were to ask you, what does it do to the heart rate? What does it do to the systolic, diastolic, systemic vascular resistance, cardiac output, MAP, and pulse pressure? Okay. Heart rate. 
Direct effect on the beta-1 receptors, increase the heart rate. Done. Boom. We're going to use this for symptomatic bradycardia. We already know that. All right, what does it do to your systolic blood pressure? It may increase it a little bit. Why? Because systolic blood pressure is dependent upon what? Preload and contractility. So if preload is increased, is it really increased? Not really. That's not affected. But what is affected? Your contractility. So epinephrine causes the beta-1 receptors on the, the actual heart to squeeze super hard. So contractility shoots up. Cardiac output shoots up and systolic blood pressure shoots up. So you will see an increase in systolic blood pressure. All right. The other concept here is the diastolic blood pressure. What does it do to that one? It drops it. Why? Diastolic blood pressure is dependent upon blood volume and resistance. What does epinephrine do to the beta 2 receptors? It stimulates them. What does the beta 2 receptors do to the smooth muscle? Relaxes it. What does it do to the arteries? They relax. What does they do to resistance? Drops it. What is the resistance if it's dropping due to the diastolic? Drops the diastolic. So because of that, look at the difference now between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. It's huge. <laughs> so they have a massive increase in their, um, in their pulse pressure. That's an important thing to remember. Okay. Next thing is um, systemic vascular resistance. What would it do? Well, we already talked about this. It hits the beta-2 receptors at lower doses. So you're going to get a reduced systemic vascular resistance and then a reduced diastolic blood pressure, right? We already know that. At higher doses, you may get a slight increase in systemic vascular resistance because you hit, may hit more of the alpha-1 receptors. All right, cardiac, cardiac output, what does it do for that one? Two beneficial things. Hits the beta-1 receptors on the heart to increase the contractility so that it increases the amount of blood getting out of the heart. Cardiac output's improved and it hits the beta-2 receptors, which actually reduces afterload, which improves the cardiac output to get blood out of the heart. So a massive increase in cardiac output. That's why it's used in heart failure, acute heart failure, decompensated heart failure, cardiogenic shock. And then the last thing here is what about uh, mean arterial pressure? The mean arterial pressure, again, is dependent upon the diastolic blood pressure and the pulse pressure. So we said that epinephrine may have a slight decrease in the diastolic blood pressure because it actually does reduce the um, systemic vascular resistance, right? Which would reduce the diastolic blood pressure. It's minor, but it's still present. But the pulse pressure is huge here because it does increase your systolic, but decreases your diastolic a little bit. So the, the pulse pressure is kind of big here. So when you think about the formula for MAP, MAP is diastolic blood pressure plus one third of the pulse pressure. Well, if the pulse pressure goes up, then I, and I have a small decrease in my diastolic blood pressure, theoretically, my MAP should also slightly go up. That's important to remember. And your MAP will go up as you increase the doses of epinephrine. Why? Because you hit more of the alpha-1 receptors, which causes more vasoconstriction, which increases the resistance to increase your diastolic blood pressure. So then you would have an increase in your diastolic blood pressure and potentially your pulse pressure if you were to go with higher doses of epinephrine. Okay, that's epinephrine, my friends. We go on to the last one here, which is commonly presented on your USMLE Step 1 board questions, which is isoproteranol. So isoproteranol, what does it do to the heart rate? What does it do to the systolic? What does it do to the diastolic? What does it do to the resistance, the cardiac output, the MAP, and the pulse pressure? All right, here we go. Isoproteranol, what does it do to the heart rate? Well, it's a beta-1 and beta-2 lover, right? Equally. So beta-1 is going to stimulate the living life out of it. So because of that, you're going to get an increase in heart rate. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's good for uh, symptomatic bradycardia. So again, you're going to get an increase in heart rate just like you would with epinephrine. All right. What about the systolic blood pressure? Well, it's going to increase the contractility of the heart, which is going to increase your systolic blood pressure. So that should go up. It doesn't really have an effect on preload, though. All right. Diastolic blood pressure. It's a beta-2 lover. 
loves the beta-2 receptors very, very much, so it really causes a profound drop in the systemic vascular resistance. If you cause a profound drop in the systemic vascular resistance, you will drop your diastolic blood pressure. So because of that, you'll have an increase in your systolic, but a massive decrease in your diastolic, the pulse pressure is going to be very, very big. <laughs> okay, You get a huge increase in your pulse pressure now because you have this huge gap between your systolic and diastolic. The other concept here is what does it do to the resistance? Well, I already told you. It hits the beta-2 receptors, which relaxes them, reduces the resistance, and then that'll actually reduce the diastolic blood pressure. What does it do to the cardiac output? It squeezes the life out of the heart. So it's going to increase cardiac output by increasing contractility, but it's also going to act on the beta-2 receptors, which reduces the resistance and improves the uh, reduces the afterload and improves forward flow. So it improves cardiac output. So cardiac output should mag- like massively increase. That's why it's good in patients who may... well. I should actually be very careful. We would say that it would be great in theory for acute heart failure, cardiogenic shock, but because it really relaxes the vessels intensely, it may drop the patient's blood pressure. So be careful of that. You could theoretically use this in a patient who has a low cardiac output, but if they're hypotensive or normotensive, you could drop their pressure. So something that you may not constantly or very commonly give to patients who are in cardiogenic shock with acute heart failure, et cetera. All right, so we know it does increase cardiac output, but we don't commonly use it in low cardiac output states. We do give it a lot in symptomatic bradycardia because it can get the heart rate out of a stone. What does it do to the MAP? Well, MAP is, again, dependent upon diastolic blood pressure and pulse pressure. So it does increase the pulse pressure. We know that. But what does it do to the diastolic? I told you it massively drops the diastolic blood pressure. So because of that, it really can drop the MAP. That's the downside of this drug in patients who have cardiogenic shock or acute heart failure is that if you give them this drug, it may improve their heart rate. It may cause their heart to squeeze more, but it may drop their perfusion pressure. And that's not a great thing in patients who are in acute heart failure with cardiogenic shock. Okay, but it will potentially cause a drop in the map because you'll drop their diastolic blood pressure pretty significantly. And even though you increase their pulse pressure, remember what the formula says. It's one third of the pulse pressure. So if you increase their pulse pressure and you take a third of that increase in comparison to a massive decrease in their diastolic blood pressure, you're still going to drop their map. And again, we already know that they'll increase their pulse pressure because they'll squeeze blood out of their heart, but they'll relax the vessels too much. So they'll cause a drop in diastolic. So because you have a huge increase like distance between the systolic and the diastolic, you'll have an increase in your pulse pressure. So my friends, we have covered every aspect of adrenergic agonist that you we sure did. can. <laughs> you sure did. We hit so much in this podcast on adrenergic agonist. We covered the the physiology, we covered the receptors, we covered the types of agonists, we covered the mechanism of action based upon alpha, beta, mixed agonism. And then we even went further to discuss some of the adverse effects along the way and finished off with that very classic question that you could see on your exam, which is how to graphically being able to differentiate the cardiovascular effects of norepinephrine, epinephrine, and isoproteranol. That was awesome. Thank you, Zach. Well done. And what we're going to be doing now is we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this episode up. Next episode, we're going to continue with our autonomic pharmacology. We're going to move into the adrenergic antagonists. So don't miss that one. Stick through it. This is going to be a, a nice four-part mini-series really telling you everything you got to know about autonomic pharmacology. We hope to see you there.